Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of WCL Pure One Ocean. I'm your host, I'm Reese, and I hope this finds you healthy and safe wherever you're listening or watching. Um, you know, when we start a show, I'm usually so excited to get into it with our guest. I'm just kind of frothing to get right into it, and I blast past the intro, and I figure everyone listening already can think about, you know, the connection of whatever One Ocean is meant to be. Um, we as individuals can all think of our individual connection to our one ocean, right? It's like, Oh, I know that I go out and I surf and I recreate and that's what I get from it. Or it's a place of, you know, solitude or solace. Um, for some, it's a place where we work for some, it's a place we study for others. It's a provider of food, probably for all of us. And for all of us, it's a way that we, uh, get oxygen, the way we breathe. And when I say all of us, I really, really mean all of us. Uh, that is not just for people who live along the coastline. It's not just for surfers. It is truly all of us. We are all not just, we don't all just have a connection as individuals to the ocean. We are connected to each other through the ocean, the ways in which it regulates the weather, our climate, you know, our oxygen we breathe. And so when we say all, we really need to talk and think about everyone. And that means not just surfers, et cetera. It means everyone, people of color, indigenous communities, et cetera. Like all those different people who have such incredible different backgrounds, who have every right and connection to the ocean as anyone else need to be a part of this movement. And that's what environmental justice is all about. And, you know, to this day, ocean conservation has really been, has not been that diverse. Um, and I don't necessarily think that that's intentional. It's more just a symptom of the systemic issues at large, and that needs to change. And that needs to change broadly across many different institutions. And so it's really cool that the sustainability movement is moving forward with in the environmental justice movement together, because we need everyone on the same page. We need to think about the rights of our indigenous and, and communities and people of color. So this is all being brought to the forefront by coronavirus. There have been a couple of recent articles highlighting how the coronavirus pandemic is not just a health crisis, it is an environmental justice issue. You know, people of color and communities, black and brown communities are being disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. So to talk about these stories and to talk about the issue writ large is Sal Masakella. Sal is a legend in the space. He's been in and around the action sports industry for years from skate to surf to snowboarding. And he's also an you know avid environmentalist and speaking out with us at WCL Pure, with Surfrider Foundation and more. And so I'm really, really excited to bring this conversation to you. Even though we live a couple blocks away from each other, we still physically distanced and held it over Zoom. And um, we went deep, we went long, but I think it's an important discussion. And I really encourage you to tune in uh, to hear what Sal has to say. And I hope you enjoy the conversation with Sal Masakel. So Sal, how you doing, man? How are how are uh, you doing in all of this? It's good to see your face, even like, though you live two blocks away. <laughs> like, likewise, neighbor, literally <laughs> two blocks away. <laughs> I'm I'm um, I'm maintaining, man. It it it's been a very interesting mental, emotional, spiritual, physical journey being this is the longest that I've been home in 20 years and I make my 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 living and my life from exploration and curiosity outside of my zip code area code or any code like that's just how I've lived since I graduated high school so this is the first 
this is the first pause or like the first time I've ever been really put on timeout. <laughs> Adult timeout. Adult timeout since I was a kid. And especially like a timeout where you're watching how you feel doesn't really matter in comparison to the thing that is taking place and the manner in which it is affecting millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people at the same time, if not billions of people at the same time, really. Um, and that's, that's the, it's the first shared global experience that has taken place um, in our lifetimes. We're literally, we're all tangibly affected. And when I talk to my family in South Africa or my friends in Australia, um, we're all having the same conversations and it's a trip. But to answer your question, I am doing well. I have had peaks and valleys and presently I'm, I'm on a, like a, a nice even keel. That's good, man. And it's been like a solid two months. We're about two months into this, or like, I mean, quarantine in the U.S. Uh, I'm hitting 60 days today, I think it is, that I started actually isolating. I flew um, home. I flew home from the job I was doing in Atlanta on March 13th, and I have been in this position since then. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting that you bring up the whole sort of we're all feeling this thing together at the same time. Because, I mean, there's certainly been crisis, crises before in our lifetimes, but not, not on this scale, I feel like. You know, it just hasn't been, you know, like 9-11 and certain other events have been, you know, Fukushima and things like that. They've been big, but this is one that just everyone everywhere is like, oh, at some point this is coming to our country, it's coming to our neighborhood. And I think that's really interesting. And that's, you know, part of what we talk about on the show is just that interconnectedness. Like we, you know, we use the ocean as sort of our vehicle and our medium to say we're all connected to our one ocean. And so this is one of those things where it's like, all right, how are we? We are all truly connected to each other, to the things we do, the way we travel, the, you know, the way we engage in our communities. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about today, because I think what's you know fascinating about COVID-19 is the unfortunate ways in which it's um, showing us the problems that already exist, you know, it's like exacerbating the problems. And so one of which is environmental justice and, you know, equity and, and whether that is about access to the ocean or it's about the way that the virus itself is affecting black and brown people and communities. Um, it's kind of just taking those disparities and just like making them even worse. And so I thought that was what we could riff on today. Um, you know, there are a couple articles out recently about, you know, environmental justice, the way that, uh, it's affecting people. So let's riff on that a little bit, but like, before we jump into that, you know, you mentioned your career has been in and around just being out and being curious to more specifically get into it for anyone who may not know you. Uh, <laughs> there, there might be that's a couple. A, that's a lot of people. So, <laughs> but I mean, Thank you. you you are you are a storyteller, creator, producer, uh, journalist. Um, you've been the voice, essentially, of action sports for decades now. Skate, surf. You started back at Transworld. You were at ESPN, X Games. You've been in surf, skate, snowboard. You've you've been all over the place. You did stuff with Vice. I mean, I've got my my, my teammate John put together a list of kind of like your backstory, and it was like I was like, dude, give me the let me give the cliff notes, you know. And he's like thirty bullet points. He's like, blah blah. Oh, by the way, dropped an album a couple years ago. It's really good. Um, you're one of the co-founders of Stoked Mentoring, which gets um, you know uh, underprivileged youth out 
uh, into skating and surfing and snowboarding, the Lunchbox Fund, nonprofit in South Africa. You've done stuff with Tony Hawk. Surfers, uh, no, uh, surfers, not street children. I mean, truly, like, you've, you've been engaged in so much stuff. Um, how do you define you? That's a really great uh, question. I, <laughs> I see myself as being a storyteller. Um, oh, so I, I got it I right grew, off the start. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because a lot of times people ask me what I do and it's like, well, I use a bunch of different mediums and, and verticals and platforms to engage in storytelling. And that's been commentating, acting as a, as a, as a play-by-play announcer or a host within the action sports stream for almost 20 years. But at the same time, um, being a musician and making music with my band, Alakazam, um, which is Masakela backwards, uh, as well as going out and doing more investigative style, uh, journalism and storytelling in a more documentary form, like I gotten to do, um, with vice on the show that we did together, vice world of sports. And even now, you know, what I do with Red Bull media house is, a continuation of, 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 of how I think people knew me via X Games and stuff that I did with the ASP and, and I've gotten to do with the WSL as well, um, but really being able to support what I love about what we do with the Red Bull Signature Series is really being able to su- support and, and commentate um, on premier events within each of the specialties across the, the, uh, the spectrum of action sports, you know, that really hold the, the core values of, of what each sport is about. So, you know, we get to do the Vulcan Pipe Pro, uh, which is such a special event on the North Shore. But at the totally. same time, a few months before, I'll be in Zion, Utah, doing uh, the Red Bull Rampage freeride mountain biking event uh, and all sorts of things in between. But, um, yeah, just relentlessly curious and somehow convinced a bunch of people that um, they should – to help sponsor the curiosity oh do you also share that sort of imposter syndrome of like how did i convince these people to let me go do this stuff <laughs> I, I i i do i mean I, I maybe it's imposter syndrome but mixed in with i think just an incredible amount the longer that i get to do it the more that i appreciate what i get to do and that i've gotten to do it for as long as i have totally because every day in my inbox is a either an email or a direct message from a kid somewhere halfway around the world is like, how do I do what you do? And I've been in college for journalism for this long, or I've been a communications major this long, like, okay, I'm ready to go. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you because I didn't do any of those things. Um, So yeah, I I definitely suffer from a, a healthy bit of imposter syndrome that continues to force me to want to really show up and try to continue to do my best and grow in the thing that I do. Cause you never have it figured out. Right. I totally agree. I, um, I think that's a, a great way to put it. Like anyone who tells you this is the way that life works is lying or just doesn't know better. Like it's just, we're all figuring it out. I think it's interesting too, that you mentioned doing the work. Um, you know, anyone who follows you on Instagram, sees that you are not afraid to do work, at least physically. 
<laughs> you know, and I, and I have to expect that that translates to the mental and to the professional work side of things. Uh, you are like beast mode at deuce gym down the street. And even in quarantine, you've been beast mode doing like some stupid number of squats or lunges or God knows what exercise. And I'm like, I always watch it. I'm like, should I, should I do, should I do that? I was like, I'm going to go run a couple miles that I'm, I'm cool with that. I did get a weight vest though. That's hey, been my like. There you go. <laughs> so you, 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 if, if, if that encouraged you to put yourself under a little bit of tension doing the thing, even better. And that's what I say to people all the time. Like, they're like, I can't do what you do. Like you could, it is a choice, but I don't tell people to do what I do. My, the thing that I always say in any of my posts is this is just an encouragement for you to find a way to keep moving. Because what I've learned about myself in the last 10 years is learning how to move outside of just surfing and snowboarding and skateboarding, but really learning how to move my body has not only helped support those things that I love doing, that as I get older, I can't just rely on natural ability, but it has also helped fuel my drive to continue to be passionate about going out in the field and, and working. I work better and perform better since I've taken fitness and made it not something I have to do, but a part of my reality of, of my existence and who I am, which I used to do it begrudgingly. And now if I'm not doing it, I'm not happy. Yeah. And I mean, I remember seeing you post about you know, like doing all your leg days so that you could be ready for powder days so you can get up and get out on the mountain, you know, it's like, and that enables you to keep that curiosity and keep that connection to nature. And so I want, I do want to kind of transition into, into all of that, but there's one final sort of thing because this is a podcast and some people will consume this podcast, uh, via this video production that we're doing this, this, you know, high production that we're doing in my living room. <laughs> um, but some people are just going to listen. And so, you know, one important point, Sal is, you know, you are an African-American, uh, in, in this world of action sports. And, you know, I think it'd be remiss to not hit on that. And you've been very, you know, vocal about that and what that looks like. And we're speaking, you know, a week after everything that happened with, you know, Ahmad or continues to happen with Ahmad Arbery. And, you know, it is, uh, it's trying times out there, you know, there, there's been a ton of progress, but it also feels like there's been no progress whatsoever in that movement. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like we have to at least mention that and mention that not only have you been in and around this industry for a long time, but you've been one of the only, uh, in a lot of situations. Um, and that's, that's, that's really powerful that, you know, that's, you've had experiences that none of us could ever imagine having, I'm sure. Um, and just, I don't know, I just want to recognize that off the bat before we get into all this. I, I appreciate that. And it's interesting. I never got into this. Um, it, it, even when I started as a kid, you know, it wasn't because I was like, Ooh, I could be the only person that looks like me in that space. <laughs> I, that doesn't feel like a strong motivator, <laughs> honestly. Like, no. Oh, I want to go be the only guy. Yeah. <laughs> hey, where can I be the only person where I constantly have to explain the fact that, you know, just because we share the passion of doing the same thing doesn't mean that we uh, don't have different experiences walking through our journeys in this country. And I didn't really talk about it much in the very beginning years until I was really forced to just because I was blown away at, at how a lot of times my audience would be so taken back 
or offended at the at the notion that I might have a different experience as a black man in America, even though we both surf and snowboard, you know, and, and people's main thing that they always want to say to me is like, hey, man, you know, we're all just riding waves and riding the mountains, bro. You don't have to bring that stuff into it. And I, I'm, I'm always like, well, I would love to wake up every day without ever having to talk about race. Please understand. I do. None of us wake up in the morning and go, ah, I really hope that I could just get to shine a light on some injustice today. That's going to feel really good. Um, Cause it's just not, it's, 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 it's not a thing. And as I think people have started to realize how traditionally closed off our, our industries, um, the, the action sports industry has been towards people who are other in many different ways, whether it be from choice of sexuality, gender, race, etc. as people are finally realizing like, oh, it is pretty much just us in here. That's strange. I never really realized it. I think we're, we're, we've finally gotten to the place where people are willing to have the conversation without being so offended or feeling like someone like myself by pointing out what's happening is saying, you, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that you are a racist and a per perpetrator of these racist ideologies. No, but you might unknowingly be participating because of maybe having a lack of awareness of how other people experience this country. So I don't know, it, it's our, our little world uh, is a nice lens into what the real expansion and acknowledgement of, uh, of diversity really can look like and the ways in which other uh, people are affected differently in how they lead their life. And something as simple as like the act of play or, or a and access to spaces that people have taken for granted within their own families for generations it's very hard for them to comprehend that it is not the same level of ease to participate in the thing for different types of people. And in this case, especially people of color. That's a fantastic point. And I'm going to leverage that as a segue into sort of the stories and the relation to COVID-19. So um, Friday night, I spent some time on the phone with some friends talking about the potential uh, beach openings uh, here in L.A. Uh, some friends from Surfrider L.A., et cetera, right? Because the beaches have been closed here still. L.A. County Beach has been closed. Now closed, what does that actually mean? Because people have still been surfing, right? You know, people are still going right. out there. People don't care. And like that, even, even that alone is probably one of those things where I could probably go out and surf and get, get out and have no problem. That might be different for you. Right. I mean, that might actually be a different scenario for you as a black surfer. Right. Whereas cops might be more likely to be like, oh, what's this guy doing or whatever. There was a, a recent issue of a woman walking her dog on the beach and she was black and she didn't comply. And so then, of course, it turned into a thing. So in now, San Diego. yeah, I, I saw that uh, in, on a beach where clearly everybody was doing the same thing. Uh, and this woman happened to be the person who stood out. And when I saw it, I wasn't shocked. I knew what that feeling was of, of having to justify why you're doing what everyone else is doing when other people don't look like you. Right. And as far as surfing is concerned, you know, I haven't chosen to, there's been an unspoken thing that's been happening in Venice the last few weeks where the, there's been, the police have been in a kind of don't ask, uh, don't, we'll look the other way yeah. as well as the lifeguards. If you're right. out of the water by eight, 
or so in the morning, generally speaking, is, 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 is what it's been the last few weeks. And I thought that was really, really cool. I haven't chosen to challenge it just because or, or to be a part of it just because I'm like, I, I don't know if I want to like have an incident. Um, and also, too, there's been this idea that like, yes, we live close to the beach. But I'm I I'm of, of the thought that it doesn't make make it necessarily ours and that people who come from other places, when they come to the beach, they're coming to the beach for a real escape getaway from situations, environments that none of us that live here can comprehend because we don't go to have experiences in their neighborhoods in the way that they come to ours. Yeah, that's, um, that's exactly what we were talking about Friday night was like, okay, the beaches are going to be open, but the parking lots are going to be closed and it's going to be a keep it moving policy. So what happens to that family, that Latino family, that black family, any family, poor family who lives inland a couple hours wants to get out of their house, right? Because they're probably living in a tougher situation anyway. They want to get out of their house. They want to get to the coast. They can't park. They can't sit down. How do you enjoy a day at the beach? How do you enjoy that as a family? And is that equitable access? And, and that's the, as this thing moves forward, there's going to have to be some modification in how that looks like. And I, I, I believe like if I was sitting in a, at a round table of a city council, I, I would be like, okay, well, we're not going to be able to keep the parking lots closed forever. We're not going to be able to close off access forever. How do we educate the public like at a real grand level so so that when they come to the beach, it's going to be a different experience that they had before. But if we take these steps, these are the manners in which we can enjoy the beaches, enjoy social distancing, and also not impact overly impact the community that you're coming to visit. Like, what does that conversation look like? To me, seems like the better way than just this light switch with no dimmer that only benefits the people that that live here. Yeah. Um, that being said, the gills are very, very dry, and I hear that the. <laughs> I that hear you, man. I, I have had one session in the eight weeks. I did take a drive early morning, dawn patrol drive to a place I will not disclose that had access, and I got a, a, a two-hour session in, and I got all emotional about it, and I've had that in my backpack. But it, it sounds like that we're going to get access this Wednesday, and I will take advantage of it. But I do think that it there's a, a larger conversation to be had. Yeah. We just got to be careful about how we do it. Cause otherwise it's going to go right back down to closing it down and maybe even worse. And we got to figure out how to give access to people who don't have it. I mean, again, these communities, black, brown communities who, um, you know, they live there not necessarily by choice. It's kind of, this is the system that has given them that opportunity or that's the only option or that's where they've grown up. And so, you know, to highlight one of them, um, just to get to a couple of the stories, uh, I do want to, you know, move through a couple of them. This first one is talking about uh, how in Massachusetts, it's Boston Globe reporting through MSN, um, Massachusetts communities with dirty air are coronavirus hotspots. And I think the fascinating thing around this is how intricately linked, you know, coronavirus directly is to air pollution you know if you're if your lungs are uh, at risk from breathing in air pollution then you are at greater risk for COVID-19 to affect you and that traditionally affects our you know uh, underserved communities yeah I mean at a time when we have from an administration standpoint 
all the de deregulation on earth taking place, especially in the manufacturing um, sector, as you mentioned, disproportionately those areas that are sort of where industry goes out to serve the rest of the country, disproportionately the people who live in those areas that are taking the brunt of the pollution that is created from those industries, those are poor people, and most of those people in those groups are black and brown people. And that usually has to do with, with air and water, which are the two things that if you live in a suburban neighborhood, you take for granted 100%. And then on top of that, right, usually those people who are, who, who are breathing in a inordinate amount of bad air or drinking bad water usually live in situations where even their in interior of where they live is affected. Don't have good ventilation, etc. A lot of people living on top of each other. You know, there's all the things that are created already via their poverty, the the poverty line that they exist in, uh, and and not having access to to good medical, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It, it's it's like a perfect tinderbox. Like this, the, the way that I like to explain. COVID-19 to people who want to say it's not a thing is like, yo, this is a black light. This is a black light in a college dorm room. Turn out the lights, switch on the black light, and you, nothing is able to hide. Like disgusting things that you don't want to see that really don't work about how you're living. That's what this thing is. And it's like, it's, it's funny. And it's also I know, like it's horrible. really scary, but it is a funny analogy. It's, it's, I'm sorry. It's the only I'm analogy sorry. that people people get because they're like, "Oh, that's disgusting," and I'm like, "Yes, <laughs> it is disgusting," and it is disgusting how we as a society like continue to have these like really antiquated forms of operating systems that only serve a small amount of people, and if you're not affected by it, if you're not affected by these antiquated systems that serve a small amount of people. It's very easy for you to get defensive about virtual signaling and all these other things that you can't comprehend. And it might even cause you to take yourself out onto the street and hold up a big sign that says, hey, what I'm experiencing right now in, in this isolation quarantine is, the, is equitable to slavery and I want out. Which is like, what's really happening on these streets of Southern California? I saw the sign today and watch the woman explain in justified her version of justified terms how you know this what's happening and being put down forth from the governor in her sign was equal to slavery and she felt proud like she was making some sort of a point she was very profound i mean i'm, I'm like, sure she was very proud when she wrote that sign and was like i've got it it's like slavery i mean it's not yeah, even yeah it took ridiculous. the time to, to make the sign by hand yeah and you know, th those those things that you mentioned at the, at the outset, you know, in what, I mean, the numbers in Massachusetts, I think there was one town that had something insane, like 5,000 and change per 100,000. If we had those numbers here in in Southern California, Los Angeles County, this ish would be locked all the way down and we would be in in crazy crisis. Like, yeah. We're very uncomfortable right now, but we would be in like crises. But totally. because it's happening to, to, you know, to poor people of color, it's easy to say like, well, that's not happening to me here. 
that's happening there. That has nothing to do with me. I want to get my hair done or I want to go surf or whatever. Yeah, I saw, it's funny you mentioned the getting the hair done and the different signs and the protests. Um, a friend of mine shared a post of uh, like a couple of white people with signs that say, we demand haircuts. <laughs> and then it was compared to a sign uh, from a black woman, uh, stop killing us, you know, please stop killing us, which is right. like, it's just crazy how out of whack it is. Um, it's really out of whack. And even like, even the manner of exploitation of, of the things in our system that already don't work, like bad policing that usually disproportionately affects poor people and black and brown people. If you look at what was happening in New York City, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago when, you know, you had white people as far as the eye could see in Central Park clearly not honoring social distancing and the police walking around and handing out masks to people like, hey, excuse me there. I <laughs> can see that you guys are enjoying a little bit of our spring sunshine. Can I hand you this mask? Just, you know, you don't have to move or anything. But then in the streets, you know, yeah. especially in, 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 in black and Latino neighborhoods, like black people were being attacked and tackled and beaten and arrested by like what looked like rogue super cops because mm -hmm. of the of for quote, not in, enduring safe distancing, but clearly like opportunism, you know, at its core. And like normal, this is normal things that you would see in a regular situation, but because everyone's attention is fixated in the way that it is now on the same thing, people are like, oh, well, that has to be a one-off. Like, no, it's not a one-off. Yeah, no, this happens all the time. And I mean, it's even, it's just, again, going back to the sort of equitable access issue, which is something, again, you've been a part of for a long time, working with Stoked and, you know, getting kids out and getting them access to things that they wouldn't otherwise have. You have parks in areas that are predominantly white that are open, and you have parks in predominantly black neighborhoods that are predominantly closed. And it, the disparity is just atrocious because... Here you have densely packed neighborhoods, as you highlighted, people just want to get outside and hang on the stoop or hang in their local park or, you know, go shoot some hoops or whatever it is. And like, just be out in whatever they have at the local playground. Sometimes the playground is the only thing that's available as some public space in a neighborhood in New York City, you know, having lived there for years. And they're just like, nope, shut down. But then let's keep Chelsea open. Let's keep Central Park open, stuff like that. So it's just, it's inequitable access and, and, and it, it drives me insane to see it. Um, I can only imagine... I, you know, how it makes you feel. Right. Uh, and, and I, I just, it's just so frustrating. Right. And then think about that connection back to the environment. So again, going back to these, you know, black and brown communities that are traditionally, you know, impoverished. That's where they're still oil drilling, right? That's where they're often put next to, um, plants or farms that are off gassing or releasing methane into the air that like there's, so much bad that happens in these neighborhoods. And, and one really good one that I would uh, reckon, recommend you check out, um, we had Michael Doshi on the show last week talking about the story of plastic. Great documentary that goes into truly, you know, the end of the end of the line and the communities that are affected by the various sort of environmental injustices that happen. Um, and it's a, it's a great one just to highlight, you know, it's not just about single-use plastic ending up, on a, ending up on a beach. It's about the people who live next to the uh, oil refinery who are breathing in, you know, toxic air all the time. Um, yeah. And so it's it's just it's pretty frustrating. And to your point at, at the start, it's like what's really insidious about these types of of these 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 types of situations is that if you can't see it, it's not really a thing. And even for the people who live within these situations, they can't see it. They're just trying to live. It's not a thing until it hits them with some unsuspecting health situation. And suddenly it's like, well, why 
why do so many people in my in my in my, in my family battle asthma like from from jump you know why are we dealing with these rare different types of of blood disorders and why are there elevated um you know lead content in our blood oh because we're still living in places where they let that slide in our paint you know all these things so that when you do have a COVID 19 that comes along and you, you you hear people talk about like oh well just we just have to worry about old people and like people who have predispositions to to uh you know having some bad things that are happening with it within their, their medical care like we don't really think of young able-bodied people because we're not used to that in, in a lot of neighborhoods in america but like in these type of areas where you describe like this is these are normal things and these are why we're seeing like this crazy crazy wave i mean you look at a place like louisiana or or areas in, in michigan where like we people of color represent 13 14 30 percent of the population but the, they're they're counting for 60 70 percent of the cases of covid and the, and the mortality rate, liter like, and are the leaders for mortality from the thing? And some people want to be like, well, that's, there's no correlation there. <laughs> oh, oh, oh I'll, I'll sit and wait for what reason you might think that is, right? We have all day. And then you, if you, you go even further into the, the, you know, the, the, the mindset for a lot of people and the talking points uh, on, on the other side is like, well, you know, those people have got to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, like my family did. Well, was your family told that they can't, they can't get a loan to live in this certain neighborhood because of their skin color, even though they have good credit and they've got money? Like, were certain areas redlined so that banks wouldn't give loans? Like, the New would, York would, Times sixteen nineteen podcast series was epic on that. Yeah, it was it was really really epic, and it it really ticked off a lot of people that like a bunch of stuff that like they refused to teach us in high school was put out so succinctly um, in a way where people had to be like, well, no, they're, 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 that's, a, that's a lie. Like, I, I don't think people realize that, like I said before, like, no one wants, I don't want to drive looking in the rear view mirror all, all day. It's not fun. But if, if the, rear, the rear view mirror is, is clearer in many ways than the lens that's put in front of us, especially since there is such a crazy like cross shot of disinformation and misinformation meant to keep us guessing. But if you look behind it, how we got here, there's no lie there. And that's, the, it's, it's only accepting how we are where we are today that we get to move, to move forward. And I, the only, the only possibility for positivity that I can see coming out of what we're in right now is this willingness as a society to, to figure out like, okay, what are we abandoning? What are we abandoning that hasn't been working? What are the new systems that can possibly work for more people? Just yeah. to have basic, just to, to get the goal of basic equality should not be a, 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 a call into like, you know, it shouldn't be an anti-American notion. No, not at all. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be written into the constitution or whatever, but you know, what's, that's a whole other <laughs> discussion of what yeah. the, the, the framers as we now call them, uh, had in mind when they were writing that. But I mean, you're absolutely right. We need to figure out what we stand for in this movement. And, and that is why, you know, I think this, 
this has shown a lot of us that there is an opportunity for change and a lot a lot of people in the environmental movement are like hey this is where we all need to all be in this together this is not just about you know saving some certain species or whatever it is this is like hey this is an environmental justice issue across the board we need to recognize the way climate change is affecting all of us because now you look at you know i love that I, I posted it recently that comic from the economist of you know coronavirus punching you know punching us kind of like fighting and then climate change is sitting on the sidelines like waiting you know like yeah. like juggernaut or whatever just like yeah. just ready to knock us out because the reality is is like it is that just affects everything across the board. And that's why, you know, we need to address everything as an environmental justice issue and think about everyone. I mean, you talk about we're in a world in which, you know, the average American uh, or let's let's start with you know the average um, global citizen has a carbon footprint somewhere under a couple tons of uh, metric tons of CO2 per year. Right. Depending on what continent you're on, it's anywhere from four down to like, you know, less than half a ton. Whereas the average American's carbon footprint per year is 20 tons, right? And growing. And it's just our rate of consumption is insane. And the reality is that when all of this hits, it's going to hit those poor communities, those poor countries, those low-lying countries, those you know, sub-Saharan African countries, um, all along the Caribbean, et cetera. All of them are going to get annihilated first. It's going to get hotter. It's going to spread disease more quickly. It's going to make it unlivable and, you know, Meanwhile, we'll be here like turning on the AC more. Um, so yeah. that's that's what really gets at me about all of this is like these are connected because we need everyone in this and need to think about everyone together because we need everyone to act together to potentially solve this thing. Yeah. And it, it, it it's all like you said, it's all 100 percent interlinked. And for a very long time, I think people in, uh, of affluence uh, and especially just Americans in general, there's American except, exceptionalism prior to COVID-19 was like a, a infinity stone that everybody had access to. Just be like, hey, what is, what's that special power you walk around with? It's American except, exceptionalism. Literally nothing can touch me. If it's happening over there, it's happening over there, but I'm in the greatest country in the world. I'm also an American. It gives me a superpower and that's, I, I can't control that because this is where I am. I'm in the best country in the world. It's not happening to me. It can't happen to me. And we gotten to benefit, we've gotten to benefit from that through so many different things that have touched the rest of the planet, including war, where we, we literally just watch war like, like, a, like a Twitch video game channel in a way that affects other people. And now here we are and it's like, oh, we're in the game with COVID. Like we are in the game yeah. in the same way that it's happening to everyone else. And for a lot of people's brains, Reese, like it is literally tripping out their operating system that was cloaked in this idea that being American is all that you need to be. Like that's my identity. I can go out and consume and do whatever I want to because that's my superpower. And now that's not a power and it scares I can see why a lot of people stand on the street and look as ignorant as they do and sound as ignorant as they do because they literally believe that that's all you need to be. And while it is a a fantastic country that I am proud to have been born in and that I do tirelessly also hope can get better, I feel sorry for my fellow Americans who have been raised to think or have been convinced that that's all you need and now are just confused that we're all being affected 
as a whole. And you can only hope that there's some sort of opportunity for a wake up in that these small boxes, these identity teams that you've built yourself into, well, I'm a conservative. Oh, okay. How's that working out for you in this thing? We're, we're both isolated in our homes, confused and figuring out how we're going to take care of our families. You got something better than that. I'm a conservative or I'm a uber liberal or, or whatever it is. Like those identifying markers are like, they're cute. But at this point, like when they put it on your tombstone, are people going to care? <laughs> yeah. Probably I don't. Not. We're all just scared I don't, humans. I don't think so. And we're, we're watching like this really interesting fear marination and everybody's acting out as a result of fear. Those people who are walking around with guns on their backs during this thing to make their statement are shit scared. They're just as shit scared as the person who's sitting at home counting their money and figuring out like it's a, but just a different expression of yeah. what the fear looks like. But it's, For sure. it's all fear. And, and that's, it's, it's, I love that you touch on fear because I feel like fear is what is driving so much of the inequity and the challenge of solving the climate crisis. It's this fear of the zero sum game of we have to give up in order for us to, you know, uh, in order for them to survive or whatever it is. And I, I recently finished reading a great book, the future we choose, which is written by, um, some of the leaders of the UN climate talks and they talk about how we need to think with an abundance mindset of if we can move towards renewables and not live in this world where it's like, Oh, I got to keep, keep mine, you know, like it's just mine. And if, if I give you some, that means I have less. It's like, no, 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 hang on. We can create systems that create abundance. Nature actually naturally tries to create abundance, <laughs> you know? And so it's a, it's a great read and, uh, it, it kind of flips the mindset of this. Oh, oh God, what's going to happen. It's like, no, 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 hang on. Let's create these systems and these better systems and let's be inclusive in that process. And, you know, we're going to, I'm going to not dig too deep into the article because I feel like we've touched on it a ton, yeah. but the article from Grist was coronavirus is not just a health crisis. It's an environmental justice crisis. And I really encourage people to read it. Um, because it does touch on this connection that, we all have, which is, this is not just about, you know, some people losing their lives and it's not just about a health medical issue. It's like, it is highlighting the worst injustices of, uh, environmental justice. And, and, um, it, it's something that we need to fix. It, it really is. And it also shows how used to and, and okay with environmental justice we are as a society, because here we are now, despite this level of impact that we're all aware of. And there's a strong amount of people out there, not the majority, but a strong amount of people out there who have gotten to the point where they're like, oh, wait, that shit's happening mostly to them? Well, let me get back to my life and take my risks because I'm an American and it's my right. And they, they are not my fellow Americans, so I don't have to have an empathy to them. Now, if we were seeing those type of numbers in the other neighborhoods, you, you, you tell me how, how quick people would, would be marching off if they didn't have the safety uh, of, 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 of privilege to want to just be like, you know what, let's just go for it. 
everything it, will be fine. It may end up happening, honestly, with the the behavior that's going on out there and the lack of distancing and uh, the potential for a second wave. It may end up happening eventually, and so um, it'll be a, a stark contrast, I'm sure. Um, I want to get to some questions from some of our fans. Out, sorry, you got one more. I, I just want to say I don't wish that. No, not at all. In any way, shape, shape, or form. I'm not sitting here scratching my hands, hoping like, ooh, I just hope that that's what happens. Um, I, want, I, I, I want it to not be the case more than anything. I would love to be, uh, I would love for all climate scientists to be proven wrong and for climate change to not be such a real thing. And I would love for all the, the yeah. medical experts to be proven wrong and Epi for coronavirus <laughs> to go away. Yes. Unfortunately. Epi <laughs> epidemiology to be, and, and virology to be proven as a lie and the, the biggest sort of scam degree that you could ever get. It'd be great if all of that was totally wrong and uh, everyone could go back to their lives and be healthy. Yes. Unfortunately. I think they're right and it's here to stay for a while. All right, let's get to some questions because we had some good questions. I hate to like push things along because I could do this all day with you, but we no did worries. have some good ones. Um, these are like heavier questions than the usual questions from fans, I guess because of the topic and or because of, of you. Um, so where do you see, this one's from Cliff Capono, who I would assume you know Cliff at this point, but uh, great I surfer. Don't, I don't oh, you don't? I don't physically know him. But I'm a, 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 just a massive, massive fan of of him and what he stands for yeah. at a cultural level, science level, environment level. Like, oh, yeah. I'm just I'm also blown away that Cliff Capono has a question for me. So hopefully I don't mess it up. <laughs> His question is: Where do you see the role of indigenous knowledge in the current environmental crisis? Woo! He brought it. Brought. <laughs> yeah. Well, the one thing that, that, that instantly brings to mind is if you look globally at indigenous knowledge, those communities, those cultures, the, the core tenets of the indigenous knowledge is direct relationship and communing with the environment. Like nothing happens without taking the environment into place and making decisions accordingly um, in the manner in which they, that could be from the, the manner of toiling land to even the manner in which animals are killed for food, et cetera. Like all of it, all of like, if you, if you look at the totality of indigenous cultures around the world, for the most part built into relationship and the cycles of how the earth works so that they don't mess up the balance. It's often and, said that the Hawaiian culture was like one of the most sustainable cultures before, you know, we showed up and ruined it. Yeah. Like they really had, had things worked out and, you know, we came with the boats and the ships and the disease, et cetera. And we're like, no, we need to take all of this and um, not even worry about it. And, and that's the thing. It's a man gets a real hard on for being at the top of the chain, but not being a part of the cycle. And I don't care what people think, like we are a very small fraction in this, in a cycle. And if, and if, if our continued mindset as a society and culture of, of humanity is the dominance that we run shit, then yeah, I don't know. It's not looking like it's going to work out. 
it's not. So uh, answer Cliff's um, question. I mean, imagine if modern societies at the highest end of technology worked with indigenous cultural mindset and figured out how we use all this crazy high vibration science and technology to help implement these things that worked for thousands and thousands of years before we kind of lost the plot. What would, what would that dance look like? Yeah. Actually be a team in solving things. Yeah. Um, be like some like Wakanda esque, if you will. <laughs> like a, a Wakanda type of global vibe. I want to live in Wakanda. Can I, can I, am I, is that cool? I, I, I can talk. I can, I can see if we can't get you a visa to visit. <laughs> it looked like an amazing place. Incredible place. Um, okay. Moving on <laughs> before, before we delve too far into the, the comic <laughs> universe, um, from sustainable coastlines, Hawaii, uh, a nonprofit partner, incredible group thoughts on the protest to end stay at home orders early and reopen Hawaii to tourists. I was and, that's, and that's different than the California question. Far, far different question and a great question. Um, all right. Hawaii is a, a chain of islands, right? So everyone who's there is sort of, this is, this, they're isolated already as they are. And the bulk of how the Hawaiian island chain sustains itself is via tourists. Today, specifically, 115 or so visitors landed uh, in Hawaii. I think the stats were for yesterday, people that went to, to visit the islands. Did you get the uh, questions beforehand? How do you have that stat on hand? I'm going to explain to you why I, I know this. <laughs> yeah, I know you're like, who are you? I did not get the questions beforehand. My teammate, John, clearly gave you the questions ahead of he, time. <laughs> he did not, he did okay. not give me the, the I'm going to tell you how I know this. On average, on a, a day like today, upwards of 33,000 people would visit and land in, on, to, in Hawaii, to the state of Hawaii and disperse amongst all of its islands to, to stay in hotels and to participate in being tourists in Hawaii. So while Hawaii isn't experiencing the, 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 the caseloads and, and death, um, what they're experiencing at an economic level because of this thing that we take for granted, thousands of planes coming in and out every day that sustain their economy, the long-term effects of this are, are very, very real. I mean, hotels are shut down. On, our, on, the, on the North Shore, that a lot of people that are familiar with listening to, like, there's no bodies inside of um, the, uh, the Turtle Bay. Yeah. There's, empty. There's, it's empty. You know, they just opened Lele's, uh, yes, last week for, for takeout. And the reason why I know that number, by the way, is because I was on the phone with Billy Kemper uh, earlier today who was back home working on recovery from his injuries yeah. um, and just came back here uh, to do some, some more rehab. Gotcha. We, we were having that conversation. Okay. That's some good pre-production there, I was going to say. <laughs> um, so to, to answer the question, yeah, how that's – that's like a, a ticking time bomb as far as the, the long-term effects of, of what an island nation like Hawaii can, could, could really could be dealing with. Yeah. All right. So I've got a couple more very similar in different locations. So from Surfrider LA, the good people at Surfrider Los Angeles, great chapter. 
How does Sal feel about beach reopenings that are inherently exclusionary? And how should we address nouveau localism in the age of COVID? Which we kind of touched on, but we didn't actually get to what you think should necessarily clearly be a, a safe plan moving forward. And then under the gun, uh, very last minute, another question in from a friend of mine in Rockaway, my friend uh, Jimbo on the moon, as he goes on on social media, but says, um, seems like people are surfing now more than ever. <laughs> you got a bunch of people who are not working. Um, it's a great way to let off steam in the middle of a quarantine. It's also overcrowding the beaches at a time when, you know, seals are hauling out, migratory birds are nesting, blah, blah, blah. How can we better educate surfers on this matter? Um, I see surfers as some of the best potential stewards, but also some of the worst offenders when it comes to respecting the ecosystems we rely on for recreation. So it's kind of like, I don't know, what do you think is the ideal plan moving forward in places like L.A. and Rockaway Beach, you know, urban beaches that have a lot of people nearby but need to do so? Well, in the, the, to answer the first question, I think you probably saw the post that I put up on Instagram a couple weeks ago. Um, that maybe a, share. It was a, a sarcastic uh, a monologue piece about being, having no idea that I know nothing about surfing. And the reason why I said that is because I was so blown away that we were like, I didn't think we were going to be the, on the front lines of demanding that we get to do our thing in the midst of a, of a pandemic. I didn't think people were going to so instantly take an affront and, you know, make it a conspiracy against them specifically. Um, and a lot of people in, within the surf community were not stoked. They were like, who do you think you are, bro? Da, 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 da. I was like, hey, just a point of view. Um, to answer the question about what I think about, I think we already touched on it, that yeah, I think it's, surfing is a, is a great activity. I think people should be able to do it as we open up, et cetera. But I do think we're going to have to figure out a way for people to be able to enjoy the beach safely and educate what social distancing really means and what it looks like when people are outdoors until shit is under control. Um, that's, that's it. But again, if, like I said before, if it's just light, like a light switch without yeah. a dimmer, and we're not really figuring out how to educate the masses in what, what that is, um, then we're going to end up in a situation like we were five weeks ago, where after we had all those rains, all of, all of inland came like it was July 4th, and everything got shut down for everybody. I'll never forget, it was a Saturday, and it was traffic backed up uh, on, across the 10, and I was like, oh, we're done. Like, you know, there was the... the the Temescal Canyon looked like the Rose Bowl. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is, it's, it's about to be a wrap. And sure enough, that Monday, uh, it, was, it was a wrap. As far as surfers being stewards of the environment, I think that our beloved sport, lifestyle, culture, unfortunately, is selfish at its absolute core. And I think many people would be surprised how few actual surfers are members of Surfrider Organization or patrons of WSL Pure, etc. For a lot of surfers, especially in Southern California, the idea that like they need to be a part of also the solution outside of like, this is the place I get to hang out and do my thing and rip, there's a disconnect. 
there is a massive disconnect. And for some reason, it, we've been unable to figure out how to make it sexy for people to be down with taking care of the thing, of the place and the thing um, that they love so much. Now, am I making a generalization? Yes, there are a lot of people who are advocates for it. But amongst the general population, it's not part of our lead conversation. It's just not a thing. And that's, that's always been sort of a conservative nature of surfing in general. Even when you look at like the resistance to changes in design, et cetera, like surfers don't like to change or do anything that's like, wait, is it going to get away, get in the way of how much or how I get to do the thing the way I do it right now? Ah, I'm not really for that. So it's going to take work. The thing, the thing that we do that is like almost inherently uh, pointless and non-essential and <laughs> completely like, like it's not essential for everyone else to, I to, mean, to, to quote Avon Schwenard, right. Founder of Patagonia conquerors of the useless, right? Like mountain climbing. Like, what did you do? You climbed up a thing. What yeah. does that actually contribute to society in any real way? No, no, you conquered the useless, right? Same thing. Like we conquer waves and it's great. Yeah. It's I amazing. I like, yeah. I hope surfers don't take me the wrong way there, but I'm also just trying to say like, for people to say that surfing is essential, I'm like, <laughs> it's, it is, I think it's essential in that, I mean, it's, it's healthy as can be. I mean, you can commune, you can leave stress behind. I mean, it, there's, there's so many benefits of it. Can you get it from other places? Yes. Maybe not in as cool a manner. You have to like try to figure out how to chase the feeling in a different way, but it is transferable. Um, and I think that if people, I think if surfers truly appreciated the fact that like, I'm basically, I'm getting to achieve feelings that other people are getting in lots of different other ways, but they'll never have this experience. And if they cherished the experience, like truly cherished the fact that this is a unique experience that you can only get here. Um, and that it is a privilege as opposed to like, like my right, that maybe they, people would want to, to chip in and, and, and really make that a part of the conversation right off the get-go. Like you learn to surf. Also, here's how you learn to take care of this thing yeah, to be that's... so that we can all be stewards of the, the entirety of what the culture is and well, the culture, the culture being the environment that we're in first, like without the environment, there is no culture. There right. is no ripping. There is no, I'm cooler than this person or any of those other things that, that come out from it. Like you, if you're not a steward of the culture, you, you, you're barely participating in the thing. Yeah. And I think the thing that's helped me get over this whole feeling of, you know, not being able to surf. Cause I've, I haven't surfed at all since I started to isolate or whatever. Um, it's just that right. like there, there will be waves. There will be more waves. Yeah. There will, there will continue to be waves long after this. Uh, and, um, that keeps me going. It's like, eventually I'll get back to it and it's going to be great when we do. Um, all right. I got a couple more that I want to bang through. Um, earth technologies, Rye Harris, you know, he had to have a question. Um, and, and <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, any suggestions for not using single use plastic bags now that, you know, the, all the, the bag bands have kind of been undone. And, um, similarly, uh, BA Suhar thoughts on tackling single use plastic, especially in younger generations. Um, you know, how do you look at that as a kind of environmental justice issue? Um, well, for instance, I mean, right off the bat, just like teaching people that the simple tasks that they go to, to, 
to purchase food and, and small items, just like have bags, have a bag with you, have a reusable bag. It's so much easier than dealing with the paper bag thing anyway. Um, that uh, I think banning single-use plastic bags uh, in in stores um, and in commerce is something that should have happened a long time ago at a national level. I mean, it's cool to see other countries that are quote unquote behind us economically that are doing that uh, already. Yeah. Um, but we're all victims of it. I mean, I try my best to get, um, you know, trash bags from my house that are biodegradable, et cetera, but they're far more expensive. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to get better at composting, et cetera. But uh, again, figuring out how we, t if you, if you teach it young and make it as cool and as, and as normal as like washing hands and saying, thank you, then it's just, it's not, it's not a burden. It's just a thing that we do. I think for your last guest, I sent in a question because I don't know the answer to this and I'm, I'm not, I, I wasn't smart in school and I'm still not smart in adult life, but I do know that plastics I'll call you are, on that, but okay. <laughs> I do know that plastics are naturally occurring. Like everyone forgets that plastic comes from organic materials. Right. So my question is how do we, is there a way that we're able to manufacture biodegradable plastics in general so that this has to be stopped? It feels like this is going to be a horrible analogy. Please don't judge me for this. But it's like um, people that sell uh, certain types of um, recreational narcotics that they put other things in them um, to make the life last longer. Plastics, if I'm wrong, at their base are not a bad thing, but all the other things that they put in them to make them stretch and last longer to be able to make more of it or make them stronger, et cetera, is what ends up being our landfill issue. It's, it's really, so it's, yes, technically all matter is like natural and, you know, we only have the amount of matter. Uh, I can't get into the, the physics of it and destruction of matter a, sort of conversation. You um, just took such a deep breath, by the way. You just took <laughs> such a deep breath to be like, Really, Sal? That's the question that you asked against the question? <laughs> no, I, I, I did ask uh, your question to Doshi, um, and okay. I do think we addressed it in the episode. And the big thing is, like, what they do, it's the way that they um, change those um, polymers or make polymers out of them, uh, and they make them to be indestructible. And the challenge right. is that, you know, plastic isn't inherently bad. It's the way in which we treat it. And, you know, making an indestructible polymer that is meant to last a thousand years for a thing that we use for a minute or less seems a little bit out of whack. That's right. ultimately what it comes down to. And then the other challenge is that there are many, many different types of polymers. You know, those numbers, those recycling numbers, the one through seven on all the things you see. Well, there's one through seven, only really ones and twos are getting recycled these days. And even that is questionable in many cases. And number seven is a catch all for all the other types. So right. the system is set up to be, there's all these different types. And unfortunately, we don't really have a great system for any of them. And so that's the, rea that's the reality. If we only made a few different polymer types and we're very strict about which ones we made and how we use them and how we recycled them, we probably wouldn't be in the mess we're in now. Um, right. All right, a couple more questions to kind of bring it home. One uh, from Colin, uh, who gave you the nickname Kudu? <laughs> Oh, that's really funny. Well, that was that would be Colin. 
Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, really? He's the one who gave you the nickname. He set yeah. himself up to get he called set himself out. Up. Yeah. So Colin is a, a legend in in, in uh, South Africa, South African surfing. Uh, works with the WSL, um, yeah. but he, he asked me to ask you this question. I was like, all right. Yeah, he, that was a that was a a, a self promotional question <laughs> because all last year uh, in Belito and at Jeffrey's Bay, uh, they greeted me as Kudu. I love it. Um, okay, so I'm gonna bucket a couple questions together one that i've had throughout this whole thing and a couple others here so um insta sam uh sam bennett a uh, good dude what does a better tomorrow look like and then um another one from taylor lane how do you see surfing in the industry in the next three to five years or sooner embodying a more inclusionary ethos socially and environmentally and then i'm going to tack on mine which is just like how can we be better allies how can I, as a white dude out in the surf, you know, how can I be a better ally to, you know, black and brown friends around the world and to that community? You know, how, what, what, what advice do you have? You know, like well, uh, for the person who wonders, cause there are probably a lot of people who want to be better, but don't know what to do. Cause it's weird and it's race and it's like, uh, and then people just walk away. I would say, um, to the people who get outraged uh, when they see things happening, um, who get sad, but don't don't feel like they have can use their voice to actually speak out on certain things and make people within their circle aware of what's happening to others. We need those people to step up because that's what allyship looks like. Your post the other day where you explained why you chose to go on the run for Ahmad Arbery. I was like, oh man, thank you, Reese, because I can do it. And a certain amount of people are going to jump in my mentions. And I had someone tell me that they were going to unfollow me because they, a few people tell me they were unfollowing because I was clearly decidedly racist at this point. You doing it, people have to stop look and wonder and be like, huh, maybe I, I, should, I should pay attention. It shouldn't be that way, but that is what it is. I would encourage people to, to get information and, and follow people and platforms that really explain um, where the imbalances lie within our society and the different manners in which certain groups of people are disadvantaged and where, that, and, and, and where that, those disadvantages stem from at a systematic level in, in our institutions and figure out ways to get involved, you know, how, how to get involved and get educated and then in turn use your voice to amplify. Because if you're having those, if, if, if you're someone who doesn't look like me, but you feel strongly about, about mm -hmm. these situations and you're having those conversations with others and those friends are having conversations with others and, and now we care about these things the way we care about everything else, then we have an actual chance for things to change. I, in, within the surfing community, I say to people all the time, like, hey, there was such crazy resistance to the Brazilian storm because for years, Brazilians in surfing, the, it was an allowed, accepted, and expected amount of racism and xenophobia when it came to how we poked fun at Brazilians, Brazilian culture, and their broken English, and the fact that they're so passionate in the water, 
we're never going to have to worry about them because they're never actually going to like be, they're never going to matter. They might be there, but they're not going to matter. And then and now look what we have. And now look what we have. Italo, they, Gabby, Felipe. I mean, so many good surfers. How cool. De- defining what, what progression looks like. And now everyone having to accept and being curious and wanting to get to know. And you can argue that Italo is probably going to be the greatest vehicle for that because he sort of let down the fear guard of the language barrier. And it's like, I'm here for all of it. And that's just a sample, I believe, of what's coming in the bigger sort of identity of what surf culture is going to look like globally. And for very many, for very many years, it was just accepted that like, if you wanted to surf, you want to do your best to emulate a Southern Californian look and lifestyle or, um, you know, the South coast of Australia. And then maybe we'll sprinkle, sprinkle in a little bit of like Hawaiian royalty novelty culture uh, for legacy, but it's not the forefront. These are the things you want to emulate. And then you might want to go to this place to have this experience. And that was the totality of how people looked at surfing and beach culture, right? It's through that blonde haired, blue eyed lens. Right. And also like from the, for the most part, like a very like white male, like, demigod sort of deal that's not the case anymore we've seen the way women have have risen through the ranks and are leading and driving performance at every single level they fought and they've gotten they their their level of equality for their platform and stage and the amount of progress that's taken place as a result is crazy the progress that's taken place within brazilian culture is crazy and what's happening on the african continent the largest continent surrounded by water and the explosion of of what the definition of surf culture is looking at, like in countries like Senegal and, you know, and Mozambique and, and Namibia and South Africa, etc. Like there's more storms coming and it's going to be whether or not like we as a surf culture are, exci- are excited that like we're no longer going to be able to put a surfer in the box. Like you're no longer going to be able to look at a person and their look and how they sound and be like, oh, that person rips. You know, you look at at the, the women from Textured Waves that have form, formulated their own platform to tell the stories of, of women of culture, of color, that are like having this, this experience because no one wanted to acknowledge them. And, and, and certain people being like, well, you, you, you know, everyone just surf, like, you, you don't have to talk about it. Well, if you don't, if you're not used to seeing someone that looks like you doing the thing that you love, how are you going to to how would that make you feel and that's i think what this that's what i think is so exciting about the future of what surfing looks like is that the future of surfing to me and a a better look at what our community looks like is literally not being able to tell whether or not someone surfs just and surfs well just by taking a look at them based on some antiquated ideas of what that's supposed to look like i love that man I'm lucky that no one's ever looked at me and thought that I, that I rip. Um, <laughs> never, I've never been cursed with that stereotype. I hate that. Um, I've, but can I, I ask I, you this? I, what? Has anyone ever looked at you when you told them that you surfed and they'd gone slack-jawed and, and asked you to explain how, how it is that you learned how to do the thing because there's no way that you should, that you would be a surfer? No, of course not. That's happened to me. I know. Literally thousands of times. 
and continues to happen to me every day. And I don't want to have that conversation anymore. And neither do a whole host of, of other different types of people. It's just not a, not a conversation we're desirous to have. No, we need to way, move way beyond that. We had uh, Eric Copeland on the podcast a long time ago, and he told that story of you know one day going out to go surf and someone stopped him and saying, like, hey, what are you doing? You know, like <laughs> my going, favorite one. going clearly going surfing. Like in a wetsuit with a surfboard. What do you think I'm doing, sir? <laughs> my, my favorite one is, hey, it's really great to see you out here. I always go, it's great to see you out here too. <laughs> Amazing, man. But we're, I mean, we're joking at the end of what, you you finished with which was a very you know powerful sort of vision for the future which is yeah having people in and around uh this sport that we love that is so powerful and transformational for so many people and you know shattering those stereotypes which would be amazing and you know going back to the story of having you know kids and young students write to you and say hey you know how do i get to where you are or whatever it is and like you know we need more people you know, black surfers, Asian surfers, female surfers, we need more of them to be that, you know, and to show that so that there are more kids out there who get in on this. Yeah. Um, and that's what's I, really cool about what you're doing with Stoke. Thank you. And I, I think we were joking around before um, that it's a pointless uh, activity. I mean, it, it really, it really, really isn't. I mean, that I, I do believe that surfing can make people better human beings um, and can give them a, can, can really change their outlook of what they're capable of in life. I, I've seen it with our, our students at Stoked. You know, for them, learning how to negotiate a new environment, um, learning how to, 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 to feel safe uh, and, and, and tackle a new environment, falling down, getting back up, all and, and, and conquering fear, et cetera, and making direct application into how to better your life from that is it's crazy. And we've, we've watched it with, you know, over 6,000 kids in the last 14 years, like huge difference making, uh, in their lives. And for people, I think even who, who get surfing later in life, um, as, as a way to like expand their horizons. Like I used to be of that, that school to be like, listen, if you haven't surfed it after 17, like it's just, just, we don't really need you in the water. Um, and I've, 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 I've fallen back from that because I've seen the way, um, it, it can change the outlook of someone's life if they've never had access to that level of freedom and being able to literally leave it all behind for a, 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 that amount of time where your only job is to be present. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, again, I, I'm glad that you went back to that point. I don't mean for people to think that I think that surfing is pointless. No, we all get <laughs> I, it. As someone who works at the WSL, I think... Uh... <laughs> Hey, how did Reese lose his job? Oh, no. He said something about the thing that he does not really being a thing, and then he, we just never saw or heard from him again. <laughs> it's, it's one of the best things that we can do, and it's, it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing activity, and I love it and miss it dearly, um, and I'm looking forward to getting back in the water, and I'm looking forward to getting back in the water with lots of different people from all over the place. Um, that's what I'm most excited about. Yeah. Um, you know, I... I that's one of the things I value about um, surfing in general is just getting out there and mixing it up with different people. Yeah, uh, the we, need, we need the more and more of that. The connection is everything. And I, I'm, I have a global family, like a literal global family as a result of this pointless thing. 
and those people are some of the most important humans uh, who have helped to shape me as, as a person. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we're, you know, that, that's kind of the whole point. Like I said, of the, the, the one ocean concept, it's like, Hey, we're all in this thing together. We are all connected by our one shared ocean. We all owe every other breath we take to our one shared ocean. Um, so we got to kind of be in this together and look out for each other. And, and that means everyone, Yeah, every single person has to be seen and heard and understood. Amen, sir. Cool, man. Dude, so good to see you and catch up with you. Uh, catch you on the next neighborhood walk, I suppose. <laughs> catch you doing sprints out somewhere or like a stupid number of lunges. <laughs> 20, if you ever want to join in the 20, 20 minute lunges, 20 minutes of walking lunges, it takes place on Wednesdays. I occasionally do them uh, on Instagram live. People think I'm crazy, but you should see my bottom turn. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Sal, for, for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing all your insight and knowledge and um, for everything that you do. We're going to link to Stoked and a number of the different orgs that you've been a part of in the show notes. And um, yeah, man, I hope to give you a big hug in person sometime soon. It's cu coming soon, man. Thank you. I have to say one note. Um, my podcast is finally coming to life. Uh, is this cross promo? I didn't know we were doing cross promo. I'm stoked. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's coming end of the month. It's called What Shapes Us. I like it. What Shapes Us with Sal Masakella. Um, strap in, folks. It's going to be interesting. Awesome, man. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll be sure, certain to promo when that thing gets live. Thank you. I appreciate it. I mean, there's no podcast in the world. I figured I'd start one. <laughs> If, if I can have one, you can. <laughs> uh, whatever, man. I look forward to returning the favor. We'll, 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 we'll switch roles. <laughs> Sounds good, dude. Thanks, All Sal. Right. Take care. Later. Thank you so much to Sal for spending that time with us and for, you know, just having a really open, honest conversation and dialogue. You can find Sal online at Sal Masakella on Instagram and on all the usual social media platforms. And you can also find stoked.org uh, online. I would definitely check out stoked. They do incredible work. I've volunteered with them. I have many friends who have volunteered with them and work with them. I mean, just some really incredible people who are trying to use board sports to essentially close that opportunity gap. And so I think it's a really important org out there. And and I encourage you to volunteer with them if you can. Um, of course, you can find us online at WSLPure and at WSLPure.org. And you can find links to all the articles we discussed, the organizations we mentioned in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. If you like this show, please throw us a rating, throw us a review. Helps the show grow, helps us find more people, helps us get on great guests like Sal. And, uh, you know, as the beaches reopen, please maintain physical distancing, get this right, think about ways that we can you know, really do this right and get equitable access to the beach and to the ocean so that we can all enjoy it because it's, it's a right for every single one of us. Cool. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.